our holy and gracious and good God, we come today to praise you and to worship you. In our most lucid moments, we, we confess the truth that, that one day in your presence is better than, than a lifetime anywhere else. That, that you really are the, the source of, of joy and of hope and of love and of peace. And when we have those moments when we understand who you truly are, when we get a, a glimpse of your glory, we praise you from the, the bottom of our hearts, from the deepest places of our soul. We say that you are good, you are worthy of all of our praise, all of our honor, all glory to you. And God, I pray that when that's not the song of our heart, that you would teach us differently, that you would send your Holy Spirit to stir in our hearts more of that truth, that we wouldn't be content with, with counterfeits and other things that are put in your place, but that we would rightly see who you are and that, that we would, instead of being drawn to these other things, be drawn instead to you so that we can sing the song with integrity one day in your presence, one day in your courts, in your house. One day is better than thousands anywhere else. This is the one place we want to be, is to be where you are. We want to be your people gathered and worshiping you, the great and holy God. I pray now that you would use the words of your Holy Scripture by the power of your Spirit to speak that truth deep into our lives. Teach us more about you through your Word. Help us to better know the Gospel so that we will praise you with our whole lives. That is the prayer of your, your people this morning, the prayer of your church. We pray this in the name of our Savior, of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, when I'm talking to someone in a, in a conversation and in matters of faith and spirituality come up, the biggest thing that I'm trying to figure out as they to see what they're believing about God or spirituality, the biggest thing that I'm trying to figure out is what they think about Jesus. So when I have a conversation with someone and they find out that I'm a pastor, it, it, one of two courses tends to happen. And on the one hand, you kind of get this sort of non-committal deer in the headlights, oh, and it's kind of a conversation stop, or you don't want to go down that tread anymore. You don't want to ask about the job or those kind of things. You just want to kind of move on and go to something different. But on the other hand, there are people who, who do have some kind of uh, desire for a connection. So when they hear that I'm a pastor, they, they want to tell me about uh, you know, going to church as a kid or that their family was religious or something like that. And that, that's all good. Of course, I care if they grew up in the church, and I, I am interested in those kind of things. But ultimately, that's not the most important thing that, that I'm concerned about. When we're talking about faith, when we're talking about spirituality, what I really want to know is what do you do with Jesus? What do you believe about him, and, and what do you do with him? That's really the crucial question. And it's an interesting one in, in our context, in, in our place and time where we live, because generally speaking, people here have a pretty positive view of Jesus. So if you give the, the thumbs up or thumbs down and you ask someone about Jesus, generally speaking, people are going to give the, the thumbs up to Jesus. He is widely respected and widely admired. Generally speaking, Jesus is thought to be a, a great moral teacher, uh, have, in, have wisdom, have insight. You, you read the stories about Jesus and you see he's a friend of sinners, he's a friend of the weak and the weary, and those kind of things are positive things. So people, generally speaking, would admire Jesus and respect him. But the Bible pushes us to go beyond just respect and admiration of Jesus. And indeed, if you look at the, the gospel accounts and how the New Testament portrays Jesus, he's actually a pretty polarizing figure. So on the one hand, you do have crowds of people following him and listening to his teaching. But on the other hand, you have the religious establishment who is not very happy with him, 
who rejects him and, in fact, orchestrates his execution by the Roman officials. So it's easy for us to forget that Jesus was that polarizing, but that's the effect he had on people. Either you became his disciple or follower of Jesus, and you loved him, or you really hated him. And remember, he was, in the end, executed. His message is controversial. And yet somehow in our context, we tend to sort of soften the edges and Jesus becomes sort of a a sage, someone to be respected, someone to be admired, but not someone to really be worshipped and obeyed. So Jesus is considered a great moral teacher. But the uh, the 20th century uh, writer and and Oxford theologian uh, C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and some other things, uh, had no time for that kind of attitude. For those who would say that Jesus is is a great sage or a great moral teacher, this is what he says in a passage from uh, Mere Christianity. He says, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. What we're going to see in the passage of Scripture that we have before us this morning is that C.S. Lewis is right. We have to make a choice about Jesus. We're confronted with Jesus, and you either reject him or you accept him. There's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. He is a polarizing figure. So this morning, we're going to look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, as we continue in this series in 1 Peter. Uh, If you haven't turned there already in your Bibles, this would be a good time to do that. You're going to want to have this in front of you. And if you're using the Pew Bibles, it's found on page 1,201. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, page 1,201 in the Pew Bibles. So as we look at this uh, text, as we follow it through, um, Peter's going to move back and forth a couple times between looking at those who believe Jesus and those who reject him. So we're going to see it in kind of three parts, starting with those who believe Jesus, then those who reject him, and then ending with those who believe in him. So first, as we look at this, we're going to start with with what, what happens with those who believe in Jesus, what is true of them. So first, Peter chapter 2. We're going to read verses 4 and 5 for now. This is what Peter says to the church. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, don't too quickly skip over verse 4 there, because this is Peter reminding us that Jesus was indeed a polarizing figure. He says that Jesus was rejected by humans, and he says, on the other hand, Jesus is chosen and precious by God, chosen by God, precious to him. So let's not forget that Jesus really was a controversial figure. You either reject him or you accept him. For now, Peter's going to focus on those who believe in him. And notice the the close connection between Jesus and those who follow Jesus. So in verse 4, Peter says that that Jesus is the living stone. And then in verse 5, he describes believers, those who put their faith in Jesus, as being like living stones. So there is the living stone, Jesus, and then there is Christians, those who are like Jesus, living stones. And specifically, we are like living stones who are being built into a spiritual house, being built into a temple. 
being built into a, a spiritual priesthood to praise and worship God. So what, what Peter's getting at here is that those who believe in Jesus are being built into a worshiping people in him. See, we're being built into it. That's the language here. We're built into a spiritual house or, or a temple. We're built into a holy priesthood. And the purpose of that, the purpose of that building up into a, a holy people and a, and a, and a holy place is to offer sacrifices to God. That's what the language in verse 5 is about. The purpose is to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's what he says in verse 5. In other words, the purpose of God's people, why we are gathered, what we are being built into, is a worshiping people. The purpose that we have is to worship God. Really, this whole passage is going to be directing us in that uh, direction. We are to be a worshiping people. We are designed to worship. That's what coming to faith in Jesus is about, so that we can worship God rightly. Continues, verses 6 and 7. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. So Peter reminds us that the whole thing is either founded on Jesus, this this spiritual house is either founded on Jesus, or the whole thing fails. Because God has placed a stone in Zion. He has placed a stone in God's city. And that stone is Jesus. And that stone is to be the foundation of this living temple that's built up to the praise of God, where God's spirit lives. Now we're going to see in a moment that not everyone believes that Jesus is that cornerstone, that he is the foundation for God's holy people. But into that context, Peter's going to speak reassurance to those who do believe in Jesus, who who do take Jesus as this cornerstone upon which uh, this new building is being founded. He's saying here that those who trust in Jesus will never be ashamed. That's the quotation from the Old Testament that he pulls out. Put positively, it means that you have honor with Jesus if you'll put your faith in him. That's what verse 7 is talking about here. If he is precious to you, then the honor goes to you. In the end, you will be vindicated. That's what Peter's getting at here. In the end, those who believe in Jesus, who take him as God's chosen cornerstone, will be vindicated. This is important for Peter's readers because right now they're facing persecution. They're suffering specifically for their faith in Jesus. It looks like Rome's really powerful, and it looks like God and his people through Jesus are are not that powerful because they're the ones who are suffering, right? But Peter's reminding them that in the end, they're going to be vindicated. Even if they're suffering now, even if they're being persecuted now, if they do accept Jesus, then they will be honored with him. They will never be put to shame. Instead, they'll be vindicated. And that means that Christians really are following in the same pattern as Jesus. So remember, as Jesus is the living stone, and we are like living stones built up into a temple in him, it was earlier on, now here, we're vindicated by God, which is the same thing that happened to Jesus. Remember, Jesus was rejected. He was crucified on a cross dead and buried. But God vindicated him. He raised him to new life on that first Easter. The resurrection is the vindication of Jesus. And the church follows the same pattern. Right now, we might face persecution. Right now, we might suffer for our faith in God, in Christ. But we're going to follow the same pattern as Jesus. In the end, we will be vindicated. We'll be honored with him. So Jesus is the one who who sets the pattern for us. There was a lot lot of talk uh, last year about the idea of being on the wrong side of history. 
And Peter's sort of getting at this, the same sort of a thought here, thinking about the, the, being on the wrong side of history, sort of looking at the past and, and using that as a warning to think clearly about today. And, and it was used as sort of a political sort of a movement right now. But the idea is, well, if you're on the wrong side of history, what are you going to tell your grandkids? Like, so think about slavery. What if you were one of those people who thought slavery was a good thing and, and supported slavery in America? Well, you're not going to want to tell your grandkids or your great-grandkids that. It's going to be a moment of shame when it comes out that, that you are on the wrong side of that movement. But if you were an abolitionist working for the freedom of slaves, even if you were suffering at the time and persecuted at the time, you are now honored and upheld as someone who was on the right side of history. So this idea of being on the right side or the wrong side of history is kind of an important uh, political tool that's used right now. Peter's kind of getting at the same thing, but on a, on a grander, more cosmic scale. He's saying, if you're on Jesus' side, you are on the right side of history. No matter what things look like right now, you are truly on the right side of history because you believe that Jesus is the cornerstone that God put there, which is true. And in the end, you will have honor rather than shame because you have put your hope in him. See, one day, everyone is going to know, the entire cosmos is going to know that Jesus is indeed the king. Everyone is going to know that Jesus is the rightful ruler who God sent. Like lightning that flashes across the whole sky from east to west. And you can see it everywhere. Jesus is going to return to bring judgment on the world and to, bring, to make all things right. That's what the Bible says about Jesus. He's going to return again. And everyone's going to know it. And then at that point, all the knees on earth are going to bow before Jesus as the king. And at that point, those who today are confessing his name and believing in him will be honored because they believe that he is indeed God's cornerstone. And those who don't will face shame. So uh, Peter in this first section is really focusing on, on those who believe in Jesus. This is what's true of them. You believe that Jesus really is the cornerstone, and because of that, you're being built into this beautiful spiritual house to praise God. But again, not everyone now accepts Jesus. There are some who reject him. So Peter moves from that to then the second section here to talk about what happens to those who reject Jesus now. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. There's a big contrast here between those who believe in Jesus and those who don't believe in Jesus. We've already seen those who believe in Jesus, they have honor. They'll never be ashamed. They're being built into a spiritual temple to offer praise and worship to God. But those who don't believe in Jesus are in a different position. So one day it'll be clear that, that the entire, to the entire world that Jesus is king He's the foundation stone, but there are some who reject him now. Rather than being the cornerstone upon which they are being built up into this temple to the praise of God, they see this stone and, and they trip over it. They fall over the stone. One commentator rightly points out that there, there are two different building projects going on here. There's, there's the divine building project on one hand, God's building project. And, and in that building project, Jesus is the, the cornerstone. He's the foundation. And the whole thing is built around and on top of him. He's central to God's building project. But on the other hand, there's the human building project, and, and that one sees this stone on the ground. It sees Jesus, the living stone, and it looks at him, and it deems him not necessary for the project, not worthy of what's being built here. And so they build on a different foundation, and it's entirely apart from Jesus. So what's going to happen to those two different building projects? 
Jesus actually tells a story, a similar story himself that, that shows the outcome of the different building projects. So at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, uh, he, he encourages people with this statement here. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. So that's God's building project, founded on a rock, a solid foundation that no matter what comes against it, no matter how fierce the storm or how strong the winds, it's going to stand fast because it's got a good foundation. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. I mean, that's the outcome of building a house on any foundation other than Jesus himself. You either accept him as the cornerstone and and build the foundation on him, or you reject him like the human builders, and you end up building on sand, and the whole thing is going to come crashing down. I want you to notice that Jesus and Peter are making the same point about who the foolish builders are. Jesus says the foolish builders, the ones who build on sand, they're the ones who hear his words but then don't do them. They disobey the words of Jesus. Peter's saying the same thing. Those who stumble over the stone rather than being built up on him, those who stumble on the stone do so because they're disobeying the message about Jesus. They hear the gospel message but then they just discard it. They reject Jesus. In other words, the difference between a beautiful house that endures through any storm and one that collapses when there's a storm is what you do with Jesus. If you believe Jesus, you will obey him. You will make him your foundation. But if you don't obey him, you're showing that he's not your foundation. And what you're doing then is building your house on sand and it's going to collapse. The point that Peter's trying to make here is that what you do with Jesus matters. If you're getting nothing else from this, that's the takeaway that you have to get. What you do with Jesus matters so much. It is of eternal significance. You can either believe him and obey him and your life will be changed forever or you reject him and you walk away and you disobey him. As much as we want middle ground between the two things, there's just no room for middle ground here. When you face Jesus, you have to make a choice between one or the other. If you choose not to listen to his words and not to obey him, even if you admire him greatly, even if you respect him as a great teacher, what you're doing is rejecting him because you're disobeying him. So you're stumbling over him. He's not your foundation. So that's what happens to those who don't believe in Jesus. That's what's true of them. It's it's waiting for the whole thing to come crashing down because Jesus is not their foundation. But Peter's writing to Christians. He's writing to a church here, and and he's confident that that that's not true of them, that they're not like those unbelieving people. They actually believe in Jesus, and he is their foundation. They are being built up into a spiritual house in him. So he's going to end the passage uh, by pointing out this soaring statement of what's true of the church. So let's look look at verses 9 and 10 together. I love these verses. This is what Peter says of the church. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
So we've seen the contrast between those who believe in Jesus and those who don't believe in Jesus. But Peter now wants to press in on the, the beautiful truth of what's those, what is true for those who are gathered around Jesus, who are built up into a spiritual house in him. And he's using designators that are taken from the Old Testament. These are designators that were used to describe the people of Israel. They were, to, they were a chosen people. They were to be a royal priesthood. They were to be a holy nation. They were God's special possession. That was what is true of, G, of, the, of the people in, of Israel. Israel in the Old Testament, and Peter's using that same language to say, this is what's true of you in Jesus. The church is now this chosen people, this royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. It's the church. One thing that we have to be clear on here is that as we put our faith in Jesus, it's more than just an individual thing. Often as we talk about faith in Christ, we think about it in individual terms, and that's right because it is an individual decision that we have to make. But as we make that individual decision to put our faith in Jesus, there's a communal aspect to it because we're not just set individually then as Christians, but we're built into a church. We find that we are part of a community. I've heard people uh, say before, I like Jesus, but I don't really like the church. I had a coworker basically express that to me when he found out I was going to school to, be a, to become a pastor. He said, well, yeah, I, I, Jesus, I can, get, I can get on board with Jesus, but the other stuff I'm just not sure about. This is the kind of sentiment that, that young adults tend to use when they're uh, kind of going into their 20s and they're seeing some of the imperfections of the church and they're voicing their frustration. That, you know, yeah, Jesus, but, but not the church. But Peter's telling us that it isn't that easy. See, those who believe in Jesus become part of a community. People who trust Jesus are like living stones, and the living stones aren't just scattered here and there. The living stones are being built together on the foundation of Jesus, and, and they're being built together into a temple to the praise and worship of God. That's what verse 5 said. People who put their trust in Jesus find that they become part of the church. Like it or not, if you like Jesus, if you choose to follow him and put your faith in him, you become part of the church. You become part of a community that's described as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. See, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You used to not have mercy, but now you have mercy. And this doesn't mean that the church is perfect. Of course not. The, the, the evidence on the ground is, is quite to the contrary. The church is not a perfect group of people. We make lots of mistakes. We hurt each other sometimes. We don't always love each other well. But Jesus loves the church. And so the church is beautiful because he loves it. And he loves it because it is his church. To these great images that Peter uses, Paul adds another image. The church is the bride of Christ, made beautiful because of Jesus. So as imperfect as the church is, as imperfect as we are, it's lovely because of Jesus. See, this lifts our eyes to see the truth of what the church really is. I mean, we can, we can get stuck on the, the messy stuff in church and get frustrated with some of those things, but we have to realize that the church is beautiful because Jesus is making the church beautiful. God looks at the church and sees a bride being made beautiful and prepared for Jesus. See, it's a crucial piece here. The church isn't beautiful. It's not a spiritual house being built to the worship of God because we are so good. We are not chosen because of some intrinsic good within us. We are not holy people. We're not a, a royal priesthood because we are so holy in ourselves. We're not God's special possession because that's how valuable we are because of our great traits. No, we are special because of God's love for us. 
That's the same thing that he told the people of Israel. He told Moses to, to remind them of who they were and why they were what they were. So back in the book of Deuteronomy, I love this passage from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is what uh, he's telling Moses to remind the people. So Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. So do you hear all the same language there? Treasured possession, chosen people, holy nation. That's the same kind of language that Peter's using. And here's why. Verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What's true of Israel is true of the church. We are special because God has chosen us in his grace. It's not because we deserved it. It's not because somehow we're better than other people. No, that's, that's far from the truth. But God in his grace and in his love has chosen this group of people. He has chosen the church to be his prized possession. It's an incredible reality. God loves us, and that's why the church is special. God loves the church so much that he takes a group of scoundrels who deserve hell, truly, and he sends his son to suffer and to die to create a community of people who worship him. And that is who we become. We become a community of people who are worshiping God. Why do we worship? We worship God because of the gospel, because of that good news of what's happened in Jesus. We were without hope. We were dead in sin. And God, in his amazing mercy, sent Jesus to make us alive. The language here, he called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. We used to be not a people. We were just a ragtag group of misfits. But now we are the people of God himself. We used to not have any hope or any mercy. And, and God has given us mercy so that now we have hope. And that's the language. We Declare the praises of him because he called us out of darkness, because he called us into light, because he made us a people, because he extended his mercy to us. It's the gospel. The gospel makes us worshipers of God. And this is us, right? This is our story. 1 Peter 9 and 10 is our story. We used to be nobodies, but God has now gathered us into be his special people. And so we, we gather on Sundays and weekends and weekdays. We gather in big groups and little groups and one-on-one. And -on -one. We gather in church buildings and at homes and in coffee shops to proclaim the praises and worth of God because he has changed our lives forever. He has totally transformed what is true of us. We used to be without mercy. We have mercy. We used to be not a people, but now we are God's own people. Now we are a worshiping community because of what God has done. And that's what Peter has in view here. The responses that he gives throughout are that we are to be a worshiping people. So back in verse 5, the purpose is to offer spiritual sacrifices pleasing to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, to worship God in Jesus Christ. Same thing here. The purpose in verse 9, that we may declare the praises of God who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. The gospel makes us a worshiping people. That's our right response to the message of Jesus Christ. Our response to the gospel is to become a people that worships God with our whole lives. And the whole thing hinges on what you do with Jesus. Peter's very clear on that throughout this. What you do with Jesus makes all the difference in the world. 
It's the difference between stumbling over him and just falling apart and being built into a beautiful house to the praise of God. It's the difference between a building project that fails and God's beautiful building project. It's the, the difference between darkness and light, having not be a scattered people and, and being a true people. It's the difference between having no mercy and, and being extended mercy. What you do with Jesus makes all the difference in the world. So you and I are confronted with a choice. We are faced with Jesus, and now we have to do something with him. We've got to make a choice about him. We can either trust him, believing that he is indeed the king that God has sent to us, stake our whole lives on him, or we can reject him, treat him as maybe a sage or something else, and just walk our own way. We have a record of one of Peter's sermons on this this same topic. He's speaking to his fellow Jews. He's using the same passage from Isaiah. The stone the builders rejected, that has become the cornerstone. He's pointing them to Jesus. And this is how he concludes that message. Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. I mean, that's the bottom line. Salvation is found in no one but Jesus. So here you are, faced with Jesus, and you've got to make a decision. Do I really believe that he is the foundation stone, the, the one upon my whole, whom my whole life is to be built? Do I really believe that he is king? Do I really believe that salvation is found nowhere but in Jesus? This is the choice that we're confronted with. Some of us have already made the choice. We've put our faith in Jesus. We've said, yes, he is indeed the living stone. And, and we rejoice in God because he's building us up into this, this beautiful temple of people to praise his name. And we rejoice in God because it's all his work. It's nothing we could have earned on our own, nothing we could have done in ourselves. But we worship God all the more because he moved us from darkness to light. Some of us are still not sure. We're, we're still in the process of deciding, what do I do with Jesus? What do I really believe about God? You're not sure you're really willing to stake your life on Jesus. Well, that's okay, but you can't get stuck there. You've got to keep digging. You've got to keep asking questions. You've really got to find out about Jesus because this really is the most important decision you're ever going to make. Are you willing to stake your whole life on this man, Jesus, or not? And some of us have made a decision, but it's only at a surface level. So we'd call ourselves a Christian. We'd confess, yes, Jesus is Lord. But your life testifies differently because you're not living in obedience to Jesus. If you would look at your life and then you look at what Jesus says and commands, there's a huge disconnect between them. You can't fool yourself on this because it's too important. Jesus and Peter were saying the same thing. Either Jesus is your foundation or something else is your foundation. And if Jesus is not your foundation, then your house is like the house that's built on sand. It's going to come crashing down when life gets tough. Don't fool yourself into thinking this. You might need to this morning come before God in repentance and confess that, that you haven't really been founded on Jesus. Maybe you've been giving him lip service. Maybe you have kind of a surface level uh, reflection of confession of his name. But, but really, when you look at your life, your, your foundation is something else. You're not really living with him as Lord. And so you need to come before God with repentance, confessing your sin and turning to him instead. But what I want you to know is that, that wherever you are, in relation to Jesus this morning. He offers you his grace. He offers you an invitation to come to him and to receive mercy and grace from God. He knows the burdens you carry. He knows your weakness. He knows your imperfection. And he extends his call to you. Come, all who are weary, all who are heavy burdened. Take my yoke on you. 
come and find rest in me. There is grace here for everyone. That is the good news of the gospel. This is not something you earn. This is not something that you somehow are so good that you get to be part of. It's that God, in his incredible mercy, has taken you out of darkness and brought you into life. You were scattered, and he made you a people. You had no mercy, no hope, and he has given you mercy and hope in Jesus Christ. We're about to come now to a meal for the church. It's a meal that Jesus taught his followers to observe together as a reminder of what he has done for them, as a reminder that they are God's special possession in Jesus. It's a meal that reminds us of the cost of our being made into a people and shown mercy. Before us is the Lord's Supper. The bread that we're going to take together symbolizes the body of Jesus that is broken and executed on the cross for us. And the cup that we take symbolizes the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. It's because of Jesus' death on the cross that you and I are offered forgiveness and life. It is because of the death of Jesus that this marvelous statement in 1 Peter 2 is true. This is what has become true of us. Now, often when we take Lord's Supper, we do it somberly, reflecting on the the great cost of of Jesus' death, the great cost of the forgiveness of our sins. And that is good and that is right. And most of the time when we celebrate Lord's Supper together, that's how we're going to do it. We're going to do it somberly. But this morning, we're going to do it with joy and celebration because this is true of us. We celebrate the gospel this morning, not just in somberness, but also in Easter joy. So often we come with with Good Friday morning, and that's right. But today we're also going to come with with Easter morning joy and celebrating that that this really has made all the difference for us. I'm going to ask the the worship team to go ahead and come up front. They're going to be playing, and and it might seem a little unusual. They're going to play a a little bit uh, more up-tempo, perhaps, than we're used to for Lord's Supper. But, But we really are trying to have this be a joyful celebration of the community of God, worshiping God and praising him for what he has done through Jesus Christ. We don't have to come somberly all the time. Sometimes we have to come in joy because Jesus has done something for us that we could never have imagined possible. It is marvelous in our eyes. I want to remind you to to prepare our hearts to come in joy and thanksgiving. I want to remind you of what Peter has said. This is what's true of you if you put your faith in Jesus. You are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The gospel is good news that we celebrate in the table. So please pray with me over these elements as the music plays in the background. Father, we are thankful. We, we, we come before you with joy-filled hearts for the bread and the cup. We pray that these elements will provide more than just physical nourishment. I pray that you'd grant us the peace and the unity and the spiritual nourishment that the bread symbolizes. May the cup speak again of the blood that Jesus shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Cleanse us, consecrate us, move us to joy again as we take the meal together. We're doing so in eager anticipation of when we eat it again in the kingdom of heaven with all of creation, praising you for your great name. We love you, God. We thank you. You are good. We pray in Jesus' name.